Whenever we're about to leave a friend, we generally say our goodbyes, and Jesus does that here in Matthew chapter 26. As we reason through the Bible, we're going to be talking about Jesus's last hours with his disciples. He's about to be crucified in a matter of hours, and so chapters 26 and following are the last hours that Jesus spends with his disciples. We have several things in this chapter. The good Christian that broke it up, I kind of question sometimes the reasoning, because there's 75 verses in Matthew chapter 26, so it's quite long. And so there's a lot of things in here. There's a plot to kill Jesus. That's the first thing we're going to deal with. Then Mary seems to know that he's leaving, and so she is in anguish and anoints him for his burial. And then in contrast to that, we have Judas that betrays him. And so then there's there's a lot of things in this chapter. There's Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. He gets arrested and tried. And so all of that's in this wonderful Matthew chapter 26. We're coming to the culmination here as well as we've talked about. This is during the festival period of the Passover. Uh, we're going to see Jesus with his uh, Passover meal. He has some things to say, talking about a new covenant, and also when he will once again drink of the wine of the vine with the with us again. And so there's a lot happening in this chapter, and it kind of flows very quickly, starting out with him with his disciples, all the way through him praying in the garden him being captured and up to the point in time whenever the trial starts. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of verses that are in this particular chapter, a lot of things that are going on. So what he has just finished, as a reminder, what we've just covered, Matthew chapter 23, 24, 25, were given on the Temple Mount, and then he goes out to the Mount of Olives and gives some great teachings about when he will return and about the end of the age. And so he's finished that. It's called the Olivet Discourse because it was on the Mount of Olives. And so now we have here the first thing in chapter 26, the plot to kill Jesus. So let's just uh, start that by reading the first four verses. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So in this, he's telling his disciples what in verse 2, Steve? What does he say is about to happen? That he's about to be turned over and crucified. And the fact that he, number one, he's uh, telling them he's going to be died uh, or that he's going to die because people did not survive crucifixion. Crucifixion was a terrible, horrible uh, way of death. They weren't, it wasn't a type of punishment. It was capital punishment, meaning it was meant for death. So he's very clearly saying, hey, this is uh, about to happen. One other thing real quick is, is also is that by him saying that he's going to die by crucifixion, 
the traditional capital punishment from the Jewish perspective was either through stoning, burning, or hanging. The rabbis later approved strangulation. Crucifixion was through the the Roman uh, government, that type of capital punishment. So it's very clear that he's been uh, telling them that he's going to be killed by the Roman government and that there's going to be a agreement between the Jewish leaders and the Roman government to uh, kill him. The Old Testament, as you well pointed out, the Old Testament way of executing someone with stoning is the one that I remember the most, where God commands somebody, if if for whatever capital punishment was required, it was it was stoning. Crucifixion was a torture, a public torture and yeah. example that was invented by the Romans and was one of the most horrible ways of dying. And this was a radical public execution as an example, people were put up on a cross or up on a pole as an example, as visitors would come into town, it would be a, a shocking sight that, hey, we're serious about things. Don't violate the right, law right. this would happen to you. And also, we see in pictures and paintings depicting this, that Jesus and the thieves on the other side of the cross had a little bit of a loincloth on or something. That's not, it was public humiliation and the people that were crucified were up there bare naked, which is even more of a humiliation. Uh, it was just, a, it was just an awful, yeah. awful way to die. Yeah. So, and then in verse two, he says, when this is going to happen, what day does he say he's going to be cru- Passover. Passover. Yeah. So in verse five, when did the Jewish leaders say this was going to happen. <laughs> they didn't want to do it during the festival. And so this is this Passover and unleavened bread, it's a seven-day period, and people would come in from all over the nation during this particular point in time. So the city has swelled, and there's temporary tents that are put up and everything. So the, the leadership knows that they don't want to do this during a particular festival time because it could disturb the people up. The Jewish leaders say not during the Passover. Right. Jesus says it is going to happen <laughs> right. during the Passover. Which right. one do you think is going to be right? Uh, well, it, it shows that he's the one that's in control of this whole situation. It, exactly. Yeah. Who picked the time and place and way that he was going to die? Yeah, Jesus did. Over the centuries, there's been arguments amongst different cultures about who killed Jesus. Christians right. sometimes blame the Jews. Sometimes they blame the Romans. Right. Uh, who really was responsible for his death? All it, of us. It, it, it was all of us. I yeah. did it. Yes. Uh, but he was in control. Correct. He died because of my sin. If I was the only sinner, he would have died for me. Correct. But he died for, for all people's sin. But he picked the time to die. Uh, if you've been following us through the book of Matthew, different times it wasn't his time. And so there were different times where they tried to kill him and wanted to kill him, and was looking for a way to kill him, and he didn't allow it. And, and so now he comes in, and he forces their hand, and he says it's going to happen in two days in the Passover, and they say, oh, no, let's not do it during the Passover. He's in control. It's going to happen in two days when he says it. Yeah, and I don't think it should be lost in, in, in what you're saying, that the reason why the question might come, well, why is he having to die? He is, the Scripture says, there is no remission of, of sin without the shedding of blood. He is offering himself up as that satisfactory sacrifice for 
people for the sin of the world. And so that is why he is in control of the situation. It, it's the culmination of why he came from the very beginning. When I was a kid, I heard people say the phrase, Christ died for you. Yeah. But I never really grasped why. Yeah. I mean, what's some guy dying 2,000 years ago have to do with me? Right. Well, it was finally explained to me, God is a pure and holy God. And when we violate God's standards, then we're, now we're guilty. And a price has to be paid. Well, Christ paid our price for us. He loved us so much that he paid our price. And so, again, here, Christ says it's going to happen during the Passover. He's in control. He's the one in charge. And so what reason did they give in verse 5 for why they, and you mentioned it already, Steve, what, why were they saying that they didn't want to do it during the festival? They didn't want a, a riot to occur. So they were. what were they really concerned with? Were they concerned about what was right and good and moral and just, or were they more concerned with the view of the people and what the people thought? Yeah, the, the, more of what the people thought. And again, a few days earlier, he has been welcomed into the city by a throng multitude of people who have given him the indication that he's the, the son of, of David, he's the Messiah. And so again, this this is and not that was all fresh on their minds. Yeah, it's not all, this isn't lost on the leadership. And uh, Jesus had had a, a big following. He had been out there for three years. We've seen him feeding 5,000 at one time. That was only uh, the men, so there was probably more. Feeding 4,000, etc. He had a large following. He didn't have just a small group of men. He had a very large following, and the leaders knew that. And they were not as much concerned with whether he got a fair trial. Right. And they were not concerned as much about whether we're, we're killing this guy on a holy festival. Right. They're more concerned with... Oh, what are the people going to think? Yeah, and they wanted to seize him. They wanted to take him, but it's clear here that they were wanting to give him this trial after the festival. So several days down the road after the people had dispersed, that's when their in, original intent was in order to have this. But we can see things that how they progress here. So in verse 3, it says, The chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together. And it mentions this one person in particular, the high priest named Caiaphas. Yeah. Now, one little tidbit about this, this man, Caiaphas. They dug him up. <laughs> yeah. Back in 1990, they found his burial spot. Yeah. And the bone box, they, they reburied the skeleton, but they confirmed the archaeologist in Israel. So I just find it interesting that archaeology confirms that this man was really there, was really a, a person. He's, he's mentioned in first century historian Josephus yeah. and in Jewish literature. So this name Caiaphas, this is in here in Matthew 26 when it mentions this man. We have archaeological finds that confirm that he really existed. We have Jewish literature that confirmed he existed. We have secular Roman literature that confirmed he existed. And I just find it interesting that the archaeologists dug up a man that talked with Jesus. Yeah, and and it's also that who he is, how he is. Caiaphas, his real his, uh, given name is Joseph. He is a Sadducee at the time. And this, again, is a backdrop of the conflict between Jesus and the leadership 
the high priests were supposed to be from the lineage of Aaron. That they were first supposed to be in the tribe of Levi, but they were supposed to high priest was supposed to come from the, the lineage of Aaron. Well, Caiaphas, he is is appointed by the Roman government. He was appointed in AD 18 by the procurator Vitellius, and then also deposed later in 36 and 37 AD. So he's somebody that's been appointed by the Roman government. It shows that the leadership, and again, we've talked about the Sadducees, they were ones that were willing to work with the oppressive government that was there at the time. So this is a little bit of the backdrop, again, of what's going on and why all of this is culminating and why the leadership is so opposed to Jesus. To wrap up this section, it says here in verse 3, the, the chief priest and the elders of the people. So this seems to be the leadership, right, all of them, that had gathered together. And I, I just find it interesting that the combined leadership of the nation were gathered together plotting yeah. to kill one man. Right. And as we continue to go through this, these pop out. We don't see this happen. There, there had been other people that had come up and declared themselves to be the Messiah, and they come and go. And we don't see this type of a concerted effort and impact that these other messiahs had made. And so, again, to me, it's a indication and a declaration of Jesus is who he said that he was because of the impact that he has made on the world. Right. There were zealots that were actively trying to overthrow the government, and yeah. they, they didn't focus this much attention on them. Right. So the next passage, Steve, if you could start at verse 6 and read down to verse 13. And we have here this very tender moment where a woman does something wonderful for Jesus. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So just give a little summary, Steve. Describe the scene here. What's what's going on with this woman? So this perfume that she had was a nard. It was referred to as, as spike nard. It was very, very expensive perfume. It was usually a part of a woman's dowry. And uh, the price that is described here in the other gospels was that it was up to like 300 denarii uh, and uh, the denarii again was a one day's wage. So this was an amount that was a, a equivalent at the time to about a year's wage. It was something that was very expensive. And so her act of anointing Jesus shows that she is willing to give up something that's part of her dowry 
that she knows that what is about to happen, that she understands it maybe even more than some of the others that are there. And Jesus even admits to it and says, she's done this to prepare me for the burial. So um, it's to me, it's 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 something. And by the way, um, Mary, who we know from the other gospels of who this is, she's not one of the ones that go to the grave at the resurrection later on. Um, the other women do, but she's not. So it's kind of a little bit of an indication that she really understands what is about to happen and that she loves him to the point she's going to anoint him and uh, give him this honor. The apostles seem to be a little clueless on exactly what's going yeah. on, even though he's told them now multiple times that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. The apostles, the 12, they, they don't seem to get it. Mary here seems to get it. And again, we know it's Mary. This this passage in Matthew just says a woman. Yeah. But there's a passage over in John 12. Right. Where it becomes clear it's it's Mary. And it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who yes, Jesus had raised, raised from, from the, the dead. dead. Yeah. And this was the one, if you remember, when he visited Lazarus's grave, then Mary was the one that's the most emotional right. of all this. So she seems to be realizing that he's going to die. She has learned of this. She has a perception that the apostles don't. And she's crying here. The level of anguish just oozes out of her. She's, she's crying. She gives the most expensive thing that she has. She seems to know he's going to die. And she pours it over his head. If you can compare the parallel passages... She pours it over all of them right, and then cries and wipes his feet. And I just find this to be a very emotional, it's really hard to describe the great level of emotion that's going on here. Yeah. We also see that in Matthew, it, it just describes that the disciples were indignant, but that same passage over in John chapter 12, Judas Iscariot is actually the one that's named as voicing the opposition. And John gives goes a little bit further and says that Judas was the treasurer of the group that was keeping the money, but that he was also embezzling from it. So we get a little bit of an indication in regards to Judas's true heart. Even though he's one of these 12 inner circle, we see that his inner heart is something that's not uh, where it should be. Right. And so in what, what's going on here is that they didn't have modern embalming. And so the bodies, when they died, had to be buried relatively quickly, and they would put spices around them, and they would put perfume, spices. If you remember, Jesus died late in the afternoon, and on resurrection morning, women were bringing large bales of spices to put around the body because they had not had time to do what was customary. Right. And so here, Mary is anointing him for burial in advance, by pouring the most valuable thing she had, she breaks open this little alabaster container, pours it all over him, and wipes her feet. And so this is just very, very tender. She gave all that she had. She gave the most expensive thing that she had, and she didn't just do a little. She gave it all. She poured the entire amount out on Jesus. And so I think the lesson for us is that we should all ask ourselves, do I have an alabaster box yeah. that I can break over Jesus? Maybe it's not perfume, but do I have something valuable 
that I could give to Jesus? Am I holding something back? Am I giving him just a little? Or am I going to give all of it and pour it all over his head and all over his body? We should ask ourselves whether we will give all that we have to Jesus and hold nothing back. Not trying to make a guilt trip here for anybody, because I have never given all. I I remember a story of the great evangelist D.L. Moody, and he, he said that when he was young, somebody approached him and said, you know, there's never in the history of Christianity been a man who gave it all for the cause of Christ. And he said when he was young, I'm going to be that man. And he spent his life giving everything he had. He was traveling a lot. He was an evangelist, saw a lot of people saved. He traveled the world. And at the end of his life, he could say, the world has never seen a man that gave all to Christ. Because even he, even the great D.L. Moody, didn't give everything. And so most of us have given far, far less So I'm not holding myself up by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just asking myself this question. Do I still have an alabaster box? Do I have something that that I could give of value and pour it all over Jesus? Or am I being selfish and holding it back? And do we truly understand exactly what Christ did for us? Because if we truly, truly understand, then we would want to give our all to him. and, And we see that through the act of what Mary is doing. Is it good to give costly things to the work of the Lord? Yes. Because yeah. o- over the years, yeah. we've seen temples built that were, you know, cathedrals built right. that were a king's ransom. Yeah. Is it good to spend a lot of money on, on buildings and giving and things like that? It depends upon what the what the intent is in the heart of the uh, giving giving is for. So Right. If it's truly for the cause of Christ, for the glory of the Lord— yeah. then let's not give them the old leftovers. Let's give them the best. Right. But if it's a lot of money so I can build an idol, so I can worship the idol instead of Christ, yeah. if I can worship the building instead of Christ, then let's tear it all down and bulldoze it. Yeah. And then when we do give costly things, such as buildings, do we give frugally or do we give wholeheartedly? Am I giving it for the Lord? Am I doing it because something out of pride for me. Do, do I want my name on the building or am I doing it just for the glory of the Lord? So I submit that it's okay to give expensive things to the Lord, but let's not make a, a public display. And so then the other kind of thing here, just in a side note, there's a couple of different passages that do a similar thing. There's one in Luke seven thirty eight where there's a harlot that anoints Jesus' feet with her tears. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a similar thing, but that's a different account. Mm -hmm. The one in John 12 is the same account. Correct. So Jesus said in verse 11, You have the poor with you always. Has there ever been a time, an age, in any country where there's not any poor people? No. So this seems, I mean, you could... True statement. It's a true statement. What responsibilities... Do we have to the poor? Well, we should because that's what they're arguing about here. You should have you should have taken this expensive (laughs) perfume and sold it and given it to the poor. And he says, "The poor you have with you always." Right, but you're not going to have me. So, yeah. Well, we should have compassion for the poor, and we should take care of them and make arrangements for them. But uh, yeah, because they're they're always here. So we have this very tender moment here where this woman gives all that she has. It's very tender, very 
emotional, very loving, very soft, and she dedicates her love. It just pours it out all over him. The next little story is in stark contrast. It's more of a cold prickly, and this is Judas selling out Jesus for money. And so let me go ahead and read that. In, in very stark contrast to this last story, we have what Judas does. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give to me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So right here, that is the point where Judas decides to betray Jesus, or at right. least the, the point where he takes action on it, let's right. say that way. He, he could have decided earlier, but here's the point where he actually puts shoe leather into this act of betrayal. Now, he was one of the 12, spent three years with Jesus, and here he is betraying him for money. He goes to them and says, what are you willing to give me? So he's intentionally selling out Jesus for money. And there's been a lot of discussion over the centuries about his motivations, and I'm not sure there's a real answer to it. Yeah. But Steve, what's your what's your comment just on this, this, this act of betrayal? Again, we saw earlier, because he had been embezzling money, we see really how his heart is. And it's curious that Jesus has taken one of the 12 who has been with him all these three years and yet knows that this is going to be somebody that's going to betray him. And we see over in Luke that Satan had entered or the devil had entered Judas 22, three says, and Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot belonging to the number of 12. So we see him giving into, and that the devil taking advantage of this heart that Judas has in order to betray Jesus to the people. And um, do you think he's motivated by money? Well, yes, because again, he's been embezzling money from the treasury or from their money that the, the disciples have, have, have John 12, six tells yeah. us that he, he kept the money box and would right. steal from it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know that there's been some, some things through the years that, that talk about Judas and, and, and said, well, his motivation was that Jesus wasn't moving quick enough that he was expecting him to overthrow the Roman government. But we don't really get any indication of that through the actual it's, scripture. It's possible that's the case, yeah. but it's it's reading some things into the, the scripture doesn't say. Correct. And it's it's more clear that his motivation is, is is greed. And what Matthew is doing here, I think, is a obvious contrast between Mary, who gives all she had, she the most valuable thing she had. These were not wealthy people, and she took this perfume that was a year's pay. It was, again, right. part of her dowry or one that she would give to her daughter. This was like a family treasure, and she gave it all. She broke open the box, poured it all out all over him, the whole thing, because of her love for Jesus. And then here is Judas, who got to spend much more time with Jesus than Mary ever did. Right. And he's selling them out for 30 pieces of silver. Correct. And so Matthew seems to be contrasting those two between Mary, who was generous beyond all expectation, and Judas, who was just greedy. And Judas had been discussing with the leadership before in regards to 
they had been plotting, the leadership had been plotting before this ever came about. And we have an indication that Judas had been working with them. And now it comes to the point that he finally goes to them and says, okay, what are, what will you give me in order to betray him? What's the, what's the monetary amount that you'll give me? And it's curious that this monetary amount, it's the same price that in the Old Testament in Exodus, it talks about if a servant was gored by an ox, by another person's ox, then the amount that they should be given was 30 pieces of silver. And through the years, that became known uh, within the Jewish community as a price of contempt. And so here it is, Judas, who has been with Jesus for three years, knows that he's innocent of everything. And yet he is willing to sell out and betray Jesus for the price of contempt, which is 30 pieces of silver. It was a contemptuous amount of money. Yeah. And so what I, I always ask myself is, how much is an innocent man worth? Yeah. 30 pieces? How about 40? Yeah. Or, or 50 or 60? I mean, how, yeah. how much would I take to betray a friend? Right. How much would I take to betray my Lord? How much would I get bribed with? To walk away from Jesus. And I submit that emotionally, I probably have been tempted to do that. I hope I've not done it, mm-hmm. but there's probably been times where I compromised for much less than 30 pieces of silver. I've probably compromised in my life, my Lord, over much less than that. And sometimes it's for nothing other than public embarrassment. Right. And so I've been guilty of some of the same crimes. And so I ask forgiveness, and I hope I don't do it again of acting like Judas Iscariot. And I submit that people of all ages, real easy to to condemn Judas here, but all of us have been guilty of selling out to the Lord, and we've done it for much less than 30 pieces of silver. So now, here's the other thing I learned from this man, Judas. He spent three years with Jesus. Yeah, He saw all that Jesus did. He was with him on a daily basis. Right. He saw all the miracles. He heard all these teachings. Mm-hmm. He was there when he did all these things. Mm-hmm. And he walks away from Jesus Christ and sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Right. Many of the Jewish leaders saw Jesus' miracles and did not believe. Therefore, seeing miracles directly in front of you... Mm-hmm. Multiple times over and over, seeing a man four days dead rise from the dead wasn't enough to convince this man that Jesus was worth following. And so I submit to all of my modern skeptic and critical friends, if you saw a real genuine miracle, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't believe because you don't want to believe. Right. Seeing the miracles Judas saw, the Jewish leaders saw it, wasn't enough. It's whether we want to believe. It gets down to, am I wanting to not follow Jesus because I want to follow my own selfish way? Or am I truly going to face the honest fact that he is who he says he is? Yeah, the the great question that comes along is to ask if Christianity were true, would you then believe? And if a person says, no, even if it was true, I wouldn't believe, well... Okay, there's no, there's nothing, no teaching, no sign of miracle, anything that's going to be able to convince that person. So I think uh, that's a good place that we pause today because we're getting ready to get into some more activity that's taking place. We're going to see Jesus next at the last uh, Passover.
Supper and some of the things, the teachings that he's going to impart there. He's going to be talking about a new covenant, and we'll uh, deal a little bit with that. And then we're also going to see him, his actual arrest and the other activities that happen. So we hope that you've enjoyed this session, and we will see you next time on Reasoning Through the Bible. (laughs) 